Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. All these girls gonna be in the league? Hello, gorgeous. Female fight club. All men must die, but we are not men. Grab it, Christian! What do you think happened to Karen? Lauren. Girl, her name is Kimberly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of the Citizen Dame podcast, the podcast devoted to talking about movies, garbage people, and, and Gary Oldman before we recorded today. As always, I am Kristen Lopez here with Karen Peterson. Hi. Lauren Humphreys-Brooks. Hello. And Kimberly Pierce. Hello. And where do we want to start in this grab bag? This is actually a pretty mellow episode. Let's Let's get this weekend garbage people out of the way, because at this point, names are just starting to be vomited out, and I think we've hit, not apathetic, but just, like, we don't really care anymore. We care, but we don't want to talk about these people. I think, is that is that kind of what we're going for? Well, I think we're getting into the less interesting names. <laughs> yes, yes. I think we're filled with people that are just like, really? That's where we're at. We're at the really part. So still, so still waiting on Brian Singer though. I mean, still, well, we're gonna well, we're gonna talk about hiding, Brian Singer. So. <laughs> we're gonna talk about Brian Singer really quickly at a certain point, but let's get um, some of the quick grab bag things out of the way. Um, Jeffrey Rush got accused of inappropriate conduct while he was doing a play. He says he denies it and that he's leaving the play. And that's about it. Like, there's no known, um, we're not sure who accused him. It was just kind of like a complaint. That's where we're at right now. And that, to me, is kind of dangerous territory. Because I, I, I don't want to use what stupid people are using, which is witch hunt. But, you know, we're kind of getting to the point where just some person said it. We're not saying who it is. Um, and you don't have to, but I, I don't know. We're just kind of getting these kind of weird intangible stories i think i don't know is is there a better term that i could be going with here well i don't know if there's a better term but that's definitely what's starting to happen which is always a danger in these kinds of situations you when you start rooting out bad people you're going to get these vague (laughs) sort of accusations that don't really that aren't backed up by anything I think that's exactly. what's happening with Jeffrey Rush. I think the reason he's leaving the play is because either uh, he was already ready to be done with it anyway, or it, there's probably something very toxic going on there, and he's just like, you know what, forget it. <laughs> I don't need this. So Exactly. So one of the bigger ones is that Garrison Keillor was uh, leaving Prairie Home Companion. That was all done he, after being accused of inappropriate behavior. I have... The only thing I know about Garrison Keillor is that he did Prairie Home Companion. So does anybody want to take point on this? Because I have no concept of any of this. Same. That's about as much as I know. I mean, he's a he's a big radio personality. That's basically what we know about him. He's he's creepy. He's always been creepy. <laughs> I, I'm not horribly shocked by this. You know, there are there is almost a sense of Schadenfreude with some of these because every once in a while and I. I think we're going to talk about Matt Lauer. Every once in a while, I'm just like, yeah, I really hate that guy. And I, I'm not, it's not like I'm glad that this is happening, but I always thought he was off. It was that, it's that sort of feeling. Yeah. Um, and also, uh, we didn't mention it when it happened, but Charlie Rose lost uh, all his avenues of, uh, of careerism uh, after multiple accounts 
of harassment and sexual misconduct. This one was weird to me just because Charlie Rose is so old that I was just like, really? That guy? But then, but then, um. but then you watch and remember all the John Oliver comments that he's made. If you watch um, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, there's kind of like this, it was humorous, and now it's just gross. The segment that he would do about weird things Charlie Rose says during his show <laughs> that are all vaguely like sexual or weird innuendos or just crass and now you're just nodding your head like yeah that made a lot of sense yeah <laughs> so this is where we're at we're at the yes mm-hmm. um and then yeah, another one. we we did we didn't mention lena dunham i don't want to mention lena dunham so we just kind of know that she's already horrible she defended her friend who was a writer who was accused of sexual harassment um against a woman of color wasn't he accused of rape? Yes. Yeah. I, I might have, yeah. I, I don't remember. The, all the charges are just kind of blanding in my head. Mm-hmm. But um, but the point is, is if you didn't think Lena Dunham was racist before, you should kind of know that now. So, yeah. It happened like two, three weeks ago. I, I don't really feel like we need to give it too much time. The big one was Matt Lauer. So, Matt Lauer got fired within 24 hours. Within 12 uh, on, hours. Within 12 hours yeah. of uh, being uh, from the Today Show after a complaint was lodged that had significant proof because, men, if you're going to harass somebody, maybe do it verbally, not text it or write it or email it to somebody where there's, like, I don't know, a written record of it somewhere. Um, Probably you know, shouldn't I, leave it on voicemails. Exactly, exactly. Maybe Morse code next time? Sign? I don't know. Um, but yeah, he. there were text messages that proved uh, that he was uh, sexually harassing uh, coworkers, and it turned into this big thing where people, of course, said, oh yeah, we totally knew this, that women were totally, you know, kind of told that he was the guy to sleep with if, if he wanted to get ahead. There was talk that he had a button on his desk that would lock the door from the inside, which is not necessarily a sign that you are a garbage person, because I know that many businesses have those now if there's like high crime and stuff. So the question that I have about that, though, and this was something someone raised, I think, on Twitter. Do those buttons? It's understandable to lock the door from the inside if you have a lot of crime. But does that mean that the person inside the office can't get out? No, no, no. Uh-uh. It locks it just so, so that people can't walk in. So that's the issue. Like it's the, At least the way that Variety made it sound, it sounded like he was locking women in so they couldn't leave. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm not, they, the, 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 article, image, the image that I had is very Rock Hudson pillow talk <laughs> cad, you know. Yes. Come here, baby. The article I had read was that he did it so that no one, he knew that no one could walk in on him. Yeah, uh, not, so. I, I think that the, the problem is, is that in this instance, it's being used in an inappropriate context. Right. I'm saying that it wouldn't have been necessarily bizarre for him to have one as a public figure. Yeah, people um, immediately started calling me, it a rape button, and it's like, well, no, <laughs> because since nine eleven, a lot of people have these, and you know, I don't of- remember which famous studio had had it back in the day, and I could be completely wrong, but I had always heard that I don't know if it was Louis B or Zanuck or someone had a button that would make curtains draw from the inside of the office. 
so that you couldn't see inside. That always seemed creepier to me. Um, it's it's still always creepy because you yeah. I mean you kind of have the image so you're talking about Rock Hudson and Pillow Talk. It's it's the kind of image of the sexual predator, et cetera, yeah. going to the door and turning the lock. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and suddenly it's like you are now locked into this room with me. Even though, you know, you can go and turn the lock again and walk out. It still has that that feeling of like you are now in a room where no one if you scream, no one can get in. Right. Yeah. Right. All, all of that stuff. And so I think that that combined with the fact that they're talking about his office was very isolated. Uh, it, it's it's creepy as hell. It's just as creepy as Harvey Weinstein uh, having his meetings in his bathrobe. Oh, like, exactly. That's, yeah. Yeah, and, and keep in mind, we're hearing all of this during the time when you're probably hearing Baby It's Cold Outside all the time <laughs> on the radio, which I don't care what you think about that song. It's still skeezy as hell. So, yeah, Matt Lauer lost his job, and NBC did not want to pay him, like, the $30 million golden parachute that he was uh, thought he was going to get. So, yay! Uh-huh. Go NBC. <laughs> Go NBC. Um, so, yeah, that was a that was a pretty big deal. But, you know, I think we all agree Matt Lauer's always kind of cultivated this air of being a dick. You know, the whole Ann Curry thing um, yeah. ha- has always left me with a bad impression of him. And I've heard, like, through the gossip vine for years that he was an ass. And, yeah. again... Watch that Charlie Rose interview with him and Katie Couric, where Katie Couric talks about how Matt Lauer has a, quote, nasty habit of pinching her on the ass. Oh, God, we cannot make this stuff up in some instances. Like, it is so prophetic. But it's it's amazing how quickly these things have been dismissed. Yes. And and so, like, you know, making those kinds of jokes, it's just like, oh, ha, ha, Matt's such a funny guy. It's like, no, that's that's not okay if you're uncomfortable, particularly if you're uncomfortable with it. Like, if it's if it's people playing around and everybody's having fun, that's one thing. But if a woman is just like, I don't like the fact that he's doing this, but ha, ha, it's just Matt, you know. Yep. It goes uh, back to, lo- we go back to locker room talk. It all comes back around. Yeah, and, and that's the way that women tend to react to being treated like that is is that you try to laugh it off. You try to like make <laughs> it less Yeah, make it less than what it is because it's so disturbing and you also don't want to open yourself up for you know being criticized for saying like, Hey dude, don't do that. It's just it's, well, Yeah, because the the reaction is that people are gonna say like, Oh, you're overreacting. Just yeah, calm down. Exactly. You know? So uh then we're gonna move right along. I, I hope so then we're going to move right along to our favorite garbage person, Johnny Depp. Um, <laughs> this came out of Entertainment Weekly uh, a couple days ago, but Warner Brothers had confirmed earlier in the month that Johnny Depp was going to star in next year's Harry Potter prequel, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. God, the headlines are going to write themselves when that movie comes out next year. And people noticeably were upset because... Johnny Depp is uh, been accused of domestic violence. And again, the title of the movie is The Crimes of Grindelwald. I mean, don't make it easy for us, people. And of course, David Yates, who is the director who directed several Harry Potter films, is in the midst of shooting the sequel and was asked about Johnny Depp's participation. He could have answered this question a multitude of ways and decided to answer it as such. He says, and I'm going to just quote verbatim here. He says, quote, honestly, there's an issue at the moment where there's a lot of people being accused of things of things, comma, 
They're being accused by multiple victims, and it's compelling and frightening. With Johnny, it seems to me there was one person who took a pop at him and claimed something. I can only tell you about the man I see every day. He's full of decency and kindness, and that's all I see. Whatever accusation was out there doesn't tally with the kind of human being I've been working with. So let's break that down. Um, So he first starts with, we're coming, he doesn't say it's a witch hunt, but he kind of says, like, we're at this point where people are being accused, and if you're anybody with a penis, you are afraid. Okay. So then it turns into Johnny Depp specifically. There was one person, i.e. his ex-wife, who he claims hit him first, and thus, I guess, was allowed to have herself be beaten and that because i know him i being david yates i think he's a swell guy he's never hit me so i think he's cool what somebody else take this because like i i I read this quote three times now and i still am just like hmm well (laughs) it's it's so fucking classic i mean it the the response i mean i'm sorry the the response it's it kind of i mean it reminds me of the lena dunham thing it's just like well i've never seen him behave like this therefore he doesn't what he goes on he goes on to say by testament some of the women in depp's life have said the same thing that's not the human being we know it's very different than cases where there are multiple accusers over many years that need to be examined and we need to reflect on our industry that allows that to roll on year in and out Johnny isn't in that category in any shape or form, so to me it doesn't bear any more analysis. So his argument is there weren't multiple people, so let's just discount one. Well, yeah, and, I, I, oh, one. I, I, no, I was just going to say, I think that back when all of the Weinstein stuff started, um, Emma Thompson made a statement that... I was going to say, I was going to use that exact same quote, so go go for it. Well, I, I don't know the exact quote, but, the, but, but basically what she said was like, you know, one woman should be enough. She like says sh- something something about it shouldn't matter how many women there are. If there's one, it's worth investigating. I, I'm paraphrasing. But yeah, that's, so, yeah. So the idea that Depp, you know, oh, he only beat one wife. <laughs> I mean, just think well, about it. Like, like, when you put it at that level, it's just like he only beat one girlfriend. I mean, you know, it's it's just that one person, not not all of the others. Therefore, well, and, and and let's not. I mean, with Johnny Depp specifically, he, being such a public figure for so long, I I don't. Yes, he's been accused of domestic violence with one wife, but there were always stories. I mean, back if you look at when he dated uh, Kate Moss or when he dated Sherilyn Fenn, there were allegations of abuse in those, and and those were very turbulent relationships that that he said involved drugs in certain instances. So he's always had this air, and that's always, I think, what has made him cool, quote-unquote, was that there was this air of, you know, him and him and his girlfriends get very tempestuous with each other, and, you know, that's just kind of the nature of the game. And, and it, it was documented then. So, you know, I, I don't really think you can immediately discount it. And at, from a directorial standpoint, when your movie is on the line and there's a lot of money behind it, I don't think you can necessarily afford to discount those criticisms because if the movie inevitably, if the movie fails, you really can't say you didn't know that that people weren't really big fans of Johnny Depp. And really, has Johnny Depp proven that he's been bankable in the last couple of years? Not lately. Not, no. Karen, I think you wanted to say something. 
I think the, I think part of the pro, I'm trying to like really figure out how to say this, but, and this, I'm not trying to defend Johnny Depp. Please don't take it that way. But I think that because of the fact that the accusations have been so few and far between, it makes it easy for people to convince themselves that there's something else going on. Like I was always very skeptical of his relationship with Amber Heard in the, like from the beginning. So when those accusations came out against him, I personally was like, whatever, you know, like it just, and so I think that's where people who do know him, they're like, oh, this isn't the guy I know. I think it's very easy for them to, to just kind of brush it off or make it not, not what it seems to be. So I, I think that's where David Yates is coming from. I think that's where other people are coming from. As far as Yates specifically, I think what you were starting to say at the beginning, Kristen, was probably really important and that's it's it's not even it's not even like what he's saying about Johnny Depp specifically. It's just the fact that he's including him in this franchise at all, you know? I mean Right. And it was his whole response to it. Like bringing in other accusations that are completely unrelated and have nothing to do with the situation, it just it draws the attention in a weird direction. Yeah, I, I think it's very interesting that he starts, and I'd like to know how the reporter framed the question, because yeah. he starts with, we're at this point where people are being accused. If you're putting him in the same boat as Weinstein, why are you thinking that, Yates? I mean, I, I would like to know whether the context of the question was couched as in this time period of, you know, people uh, being accused, or if he just came up with that out of thin air. Right. If he did. Is, if, is he trying to say, like, some of these people that have been accused that are so public are being wrongfully accused because I right. haven't seen any evidence of that so far, you know? Right. And that's, that's troubling. Um, but to go back to what you were saying, Karen, I, I think too, that, you know, it's easier for people to look at str- a multitude, a string of women, all unrelated, all unassociated and say like, that's, that's more, that's serious because yeah. These women don't have, you know, this reason they don't know each other, except they're in the industry with a with a domestic abuse situation. It's always it's it's much like when it's, you know, date rape or, you know, acquaintance rape or anything like that. You know, it's always the well, he said, she said. Type right. Of thing. And, there's and also, that's well, there, oh, go on. there's also the fact that, like, the people that he was in the longest term relationships with have said, no, nothing like that ever happened. And so I think that's where people latch onto it and go, well, if he didn't beat up, uh, what's, what's her name? The Vanessa Paradis. Thank you. If he didn't ever hit her, then none of this must be true. But it's like, okay, they were together during a very long period of sobriety for him. So it's like, mm. you know, you have to look at the circumstances for what they were. Right. And and I think it goes back to my my argument, which is if if Hollywood is a dollars and cents game, Johnny Depp is not proving that he is bankable. Look at the movies he's making now. Big ensemble cast where he can afford to fail or phone it in. You know, look at the last Pirates movie. I wish I could forget the last Pirates movie, which I think is one of the worst movies of the year, which was well documented as he didn't care. He took it for the paycheck. They had to feed him his lines through his earpiece. Which you can basically see that happening as you watch the movie. Yeah. Right. And he's helming that franchise. And that movie did not make nearly as much money. So, I mean, for me, from a logistics standpoint, I don't know why we keep giving Depp a a pass. 
you know, because he's not proving that people are coming in to see him. And the amount of people on, you know, if you just judge social media, that already say that they're not interested in this new movie because of Johnny Depp. Like, how is he not box office poison? So I'm really curious, though, honestly, how many of those people were already into it? And how That's you know, always true. Because yeah. it's like, is that really, are we really driving fans away? Or do fans not care? Like, I personally love the Harry Potter movies. And you know what? Yeah, I'm still going to go see it. Um, and the saddest thing was, I guess, J.K. Rowling, people were asking her how she felt about Johnny Depp being in the movie. And she turned to blocking people, which is not the response that you necessarily want. But I can see why she wouldn't maybe want to make a comment because she wants people to go see it. Well, I think it was more that she was blocking people because they just were hara- harassing her so much. That that could be you true. You know, as well. I, I don't I don't think this was just a couple of people asking a question and she's like, "Uh, oh, forget it," you know, cuz she doesn't tend to be like that. So, yeah. Um, but so let's I, oh, I I was just going to say I do think that it's uh Karen brings up a good point that it's going to be about how this movie does. If this movie like breaks box office records or does very well, then people are going to they're going to keep on hiring Johnny Depp if he continues to be box office poison which he has been for at least all of the films that he's helmed you know eventually they Hollywood's just going to stop calling him because he's not worth it right yeah 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 i'm yeah that's uh so let's move on to the last uh garbage person before we segue into just regular old news this is a really um, interesting story uh, that has come out in the last 24 hours, but uh, 20th Century Fox halted production on uh, Brian Singer's Queen biopic Bohemian Rhapsody. You might know it as the film that stars uh, Robbie Malik as uh, Freddie Mercury, the film that Sacha Baron Cohen turned down because he felt that it, the script was not um, doing justice to Freddie Mercury. Directed by Brian Singer, they halted production because Brian Singer has disappeared. He is he reportedly has been issues. Off. Well, I was gonna say he has b- reportedly been missing from the set for more than a week since Thanksgiving. They decided to suspend production due to quote the unexpected unavailability of Brian Singer. That was from 20th Century Fox. A statement that was given to the BBC said that Brian Singer had taken a leave of absence due to quote a personal health matter concerning Brian and his family. Now. Most people know that Brian Singer has been accused of child molestation and sexual misconduct and all sorts of things in the past. And with the way, to quote David Yates, with people, with men being afraid and frightened for for whether they're going to be named, we're all kind of waiting for the shoe to drop on Brian Singer. Um, <laughs> and this might be a really, really good precursor of that. I had heard through the grapevine that 20th Century Fox and again, this is all hearsay from friends and colleagues that I've talked to. 20th Century Fox knows what's going to happen. Um, and and people have said there are multiple stories being worked on right now, unnamed, about big figures. And supposedly the rumor is one of them is about Brian Singer, that there's irrefutable proof. And the rumor that I had heard was that 20th Century Fox knows what's going on, and they have told Brian Singer hurry the fuck up and finish this movie because supposedly there is a lot of money in this film. The, the, the music rights alone were really expensive and that there is a crap ton of money. If they can get Brian Singer to finish it 
and this movie, this, this ends up happening, and Brian Singer gets accused, they can write it off as a loss. But they can't do that if it's not done. And that's where we're at. The movie is not done. And supposedly the rumor is Brian Singer does this all the time on his movies. He disappeared in the midst of filming Superman Returns, and he disappeared in the midst of making X-Men Apocalypse. That explains so much about those movies, because they're not good. Uh, actually, I take that back. Superman Returns is not bad. I, I, I don't think that movie's terrible. X-Men Apocalypse, Brian Singer's already on my shit list for ruining Oscar Isaac for me. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's that. So people are trying to say this has nothing to do with accusations. This is just Brian's process. If a female director left a multi-million dollar... I'm laughing because the odds of a female director getting a multi-million dollar film like this is is not impossible, but it's rare. Um, but if a female director, if Patty Jenkins just said in the midst of filming Wonder Woman, eh, I ain't coming in next week, deal with it, and then left, I mean, would we really be saying that, oh, it, it's just something that she does? No. No. Well, we wouldn't know because she hasn't had an opportunity to do that, you know? That's true. That's very true. So how do we all feel? Do, do we feel that the unknown health issue is um, probably like a legal speak for I'm trying to leave the country and hopefully they won't extradite me? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's akin to being hospitalized for exhaustion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do we really want to see this Freddie Mercury movie to begin with? Like, nope. I, I, you know, I've heard I've heard stories about what this movie. Uh, first of all, it's being, I guess, funded or at least endorsed by the members of Queen that are still alive, who I guess said it's not going to focus on on Freddie Mercury's um, life per se, but the quote life of the band, and it's not going to deal with with his you know sexuality and his struggle with AIDS and. I'm just thinking, okay, so it's just a, a rock a jukebox musical where I can sing Queen songs, where Rami Malek's going to be singing karaoke for two hours. I, I really don't need to see that. Well, um, I just sure my Brian Singer. I, I was going to say, sure as shit, don't <laughs> yeah. need Brian Singer to tell me that. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't understand what they're possibly going to cover if they're not going to cover his sexuality and, and the way that he died. I mean, that's a major part of the... Freddie Mercury's story. Exactly. How do you ignore that? It's just like, oh yeah, there's these other things that are going on, but we're not going to talk about that. Yeah, music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, this this <laughs> movie's been filming in London since September. They recently did a big replica of the um, Live Aid concert from 1985, but supposedly they're talking about replacing him, which would be the safe bet again if they want to finish this. Supposedly, Brian Singer has been uh, habitually late. Uh, has decided sometimes not to show up. A cinematographer has had to direct certain shoots on certain days. So it just sounds like he's not interested. He's collecting a paycheck and he's doing God knows what. I don't even want to think about what he could be doing in his free time. So yeah, I this has a Christmas. This is supposed to come out Christmas Day, 2018. If they get a director in quickly, I think they could pull it off. But, I mean, this is another thing where does the taint of Brian Singer's name on this, much like, you know, Weinstein being on Wind River and, and causing uh, Taylor Sheridan to buy it back, you know, if, if they get another director and they release this next year and something, whether, whether accusations come out against him or not, is the movie kind of already ruined? Uh, I would say, I would say probably, but... I think that's less to do with Brian Singer and more to do with the way the film is is playing out. 
Yeah. I think if it was really going to be this biopic about Queen and about Freddie Mercury, then people would overlook the Brian Singer problem. Right. But because of what they're choosing to focus on, they're like, well, <laughs> forget that one then. I mean, if, if Singer gets slapped with, if he, so say that he finishes the film and then it, in the midst of that or directly after that, it comes all of the, you know, whatever is going to come out about him comes out. If he gets slapped with that, I think that that would damage it, probably irreparably. I doubt that people would be like, oh, yeah, I definitely want to go see a Freddie Mercury movie by this guy who's been accused of multiple, multiple instances of rape or something like that. What I find interesting is that this is all going on and the accusations haven't come out yet. It's like, what are they waiting for? I think somebody's waiting to get to a private island where there is no extradition with the U.S. Um, Which, if you've watched An Open Secret, which is the documentary about the Brian Singer accusations, which you can find on Vimeo for free, you should watch it. That's happened to a couple of these guys that Brian Singer knows. They go to an island that they can't be extradited, and that's where they're living right now. And I'm pretty sure Brian Singer has a one-way class ticket down to wherever it is that they are. I don't know. So let's move on away from garbage people for a second and talk about Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Wait, what? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought you said we were moving away from garbage people. Ah, you know what? I can't say... Okay. Somebody's going to say, well, Kristen, you don't think Quentin Tarantino's a garbage person because you talk to him. Yeah, I have. I'm sorry. I think Tarantino's really cool, and that's not because when I met him, he called me darling. Okay? It was a dork. (laughs) But anywho, uh, Quentin Tarantino announced that his next movie, which is going to be focused on 1969, not the Manson murders, although that will be included, is going to be released on the 50th anniversary of the Manson murders. So that but it's is not, it's not about the Manson, but murders. it's not about the Manson murders, uh, which I believe is what? August 9th, August 9th, 20, 9th or 2019, 20, 2019. So there's been a lot of controversy about whether this is crass or not. And, and there are two very kind of staunch sides on this, um, which is why I started with it. Cause I know Lauren has thoughts that differ from me. So my whole argument with this movie is that, Having read many books about the the end of the 60s, August 9th necessarily is both considered the, the, the date of the Manson murders and the the day that the hippie movement died. And if you're going off of the concept of it's the day that flower power and like peace and love, um, I think I think Altamont is in there, too. Yep. You know, that's kind of the way I take it. So I still think it's kind of in poor taste. But I don't necessarily see it as, like, he's like, I want to put this on the day that this poor, you know, these poor people got butchered. I think he wanted to tie it into kind of like the, like, it's his version of the day the music died. I could be completely wrong. Lauren, how do you feel? <laughs> I, I, I feel, okay, I have mixed mixed things with Tarantino because I liked a lot of his, particularly his later films, his, his more recent ones. You liked Hateful Eight and I did not. So I, I that- really liked Hateful Eight <laughs> for, uh, for a number of different reasons, but it's, it's a, you know, it's a completely distasteful film, but I love it. <laughs> but yeah, I, I find this in poor taste. Now I, one of the issues that I'm having with it is that this, every time this film is talked about, it's talked about as being the Manson murders film, Tarantino's Manson murders film. And 
then we have Tarantino coming back and being like, oh, no, he it's not about the Manson murders, it's, but it's it about, is. It's about a, a, a actor in 1969 yeah. who wants who with his stunt or his stunt double wants to break into Hollywood. And the way that I heard him talk about it, which, yes, I heard him talk about it in the flesh. You know, his his whole thing was, it, you know, watch kind of watching these two fictional characters rub elbows with people from that time period. Um, and one of them was going to be Sharon Tate and one of them was going to be Charles Manson. And it's kind of like that. So so there's I think that there's a big question mark here as to if he's going to depict the murders, if they're simply, you know, he's talked about them as being the backdrop of of the film. Like how how deep into the into these issues is he actually going to go? Uh, it's just bad taste. Uh, which doesn't surprise me when it comes to Tarantino, but releasing it on the day of the Manson murders is that it's essentially he's garnering publicity mm-hmm. and this kind of weird aesthetic fetish- fetishization of the murders by being like, oh, and we're going to release it on the day of the murders, guys. Like, it's very classic Tarantino. I'm not surprised that he's doing it. But it just does seem to be extraordinarily disrespectful to the people that were killed, like violently butchered. And that he's now being like, oh, but it's a backdrop of like the nine, of like the end of the 60s and all of that shit. And I just I yeah, I'm very much don't want to see this film. I ended up on a moment on Twitter and really pissed off the Tarantino bros. Uh, as a result of it, by simply saying that this is not a movie that I want to see or that I want to experience. I, I just Tarantino should stay the fuck away from the story I, in any form. I can't form. think of a filmmaker. I cannot think of a filmmaker who I do not want to take, you know, look at that subject matter more. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Karen, where where do you fall? I I don't know. I'm intrigued by his take on the story based on the things that I've heard about it and and that it's supposedly not going to be the focus. The murders are not going to be the focus of it. But I do think that the release date is in poor taste. And so it makes me very skeptical of what his real goal is with it. I mean, considering that I thought this was going to be, you know, Quentin Tarantino's Manson murder, Sharon's revenge type of story. I'm glad that it's not. So, I I mean, I don't know. I think I'm I'm a bit more optimistic because I like kind of takes i love directors takes on on those time periods so i'm i'm hoping that it's not some sort of crap i mean i'm sure it will be in many ways kind of this weird grindhousey type of look at it i don't know i i think i'm a bit more optimistic than most i'm gonna be super Um, honest too that the fact that he's apparently been talking to tom cruise about it has me very intrigued, and not just because I, I love waiting. Tom Cruise, but because I'm really curious to see what that matchup would look like. I was waiting to hear Karen <laughs> talk about how her boy Tom Cruise might be in this movie, so that's a possibility. So let's move on to some articles. Articles happened <laughs> this week, and I was both on Twitter just kind of like shaking my head. Oh, the let's hot start... takes this week are out in force. So many hot takes. Okay, so let's start with the, the later one. Anne Helen Peterson, who is a great BuzzFeed writer, wrote an article about 10 years of trying to make Army Hammer happen. And it was, I'm going to assume that her thesis was, <laughs> was that 
Which doesn't exist. Go on. Yeah, I was waiting for, for, for Lauren to say it doesn't exist. Her conceit is that Army Hammer is a privileged white guy who has been allowed to have multiple chances because he's good looking and privileged. And we're going to discuss whether we agree with that in the article in a second. But it caused a shitstorm of people <laughs> to berate her and say that it was a horrible article. There were people that came to her defense and said it was a great article, but she was missing the point about whether it was, you know, she should be talking about other things. And then Army Hammer responded to it himself. Oh, he did? And said, he did, he did. He said that he um, understood the concept, but that their timeline was was all haphazard and that it sounded bitter as fuck. That's a direct quote. <laughs> because the man has no ability to control what he says. He's like a sexier, less offensive version of our president when it comes to Twitter. Um, so either way... <laughs> People defended him. Like, they were like, oh, yes, you are so right. But he couldn't handle it. Much like he can't handle the dance scene from Call Me By Your Name. And he deleted his Twitter. So then everybody got really pissed. I feel like this is a high school story gone awry. Um, Everybody got really pissed that he left Twitter. I am very sad that he left Twitter because... I liked knowing what was going on, but he's on Instagram still, so it's all okay. So yeah, that's kind of what happened on Twitter this week. So let's discuss that actual article. I think Anne Helen Peterson is a great writer, but I, I'm one of those who thinks that she's ki- kind of missing the point um, with this article, because if her argument is, is that he's a privileged, good-looking white guy who's been allowed to have multiple chances, that's true-ish. And I would also say that about Ryan Reynolds. I would also say that about Scott Eastwood. I would also say that about, you know, any numerous amount. I would say that about if we're talking about privileged people of money who have had a lot of chances to make an impact. I haven't seen a Mara performance that I've thought is any good from either one of those two girls. Um, So I, I think narrowing it down into like all the problems of this are are his fault is a bit suspect. And a lot of the arguments that she made, oh, that he's, you know, he's he's really charismatic and and he's cultivated this concept of being a normal guy. And it just sounds like, is that detrimental? If you're saying that it's a front, it might be. But every person in the public eye has a front like that when it comes to their public and private personas. I mean, that's kind of what we're having to understand now in the, the spate of all these allegations that, you know, the public front might not always be the same as the private. So I think to kind of say like oh he's had to cultivate this hyper masculine like you know he really loves his wife like we're calling that <laughs> that's how dare he how dare he really like his wife like what the hell is wrong with him i i mean i get the intent i think that the execution of it was messy as hell so where, where does everybody else stand on this lauren I love you because you took to Twitter on this and had a lot of thoughts. So share them with us. I, I, I took to Twitter. I think that I have said much of what I wanted to say on Twitter. Uh, I do have to say, I have not read this person's articles before. I, I haven't really paid attention to her as a writer, so I have no opinion. Several people wanted me to have an opinion on everything she has ever written. I have no opinion on her as like a, a culture writer, etc., I thought that just at base, this was a very messy and confused piece of cultural criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's it's a 
it's bad. It's not good critique. And that's kind of where I came now. So just in terms of the, the essay, I, I think that there is a lot to be said about white privilege, about the people that we give extra chances to. Army Hammer does not fit into the mold, I think, that she wanted to push him into. And that's that resulted in this very confusing, like I said, it doesn't really have a thesis, this very, like, Ang angry slash confused piece of critique that was critiquing him as a person and also as an actor and didn't really go deeply into dealing with what Holly, you know, how Hollywood had promoted him or not promoted him. Yeah, I, I was unimpressed by a lot of it. And I'm not certain I'm, I'm not certain why it's getting so many defenders, given that it is so badly written. Kimberly, Karen. <laughs> I was I'm waiting on Karen because I know that she is not part of the Hammer High. I will go last. Well, I, I, I'll <laughs> jump in first because I, I reread it last night and I thought, I mean, there are actors who I think are no talent hacks too, but it's, it was such an angry, lengthy hatchet job. I just don't know why it would, you know, it's, I get her argument and the Karen, like, or Kristen, like you said, in terms, you know, there, there are plenty of actors out there that can prove that point. I see the point she was trying to make, but she completely lost her point in attacking him to the extent she did so specifically. And I mean, I've done star persona work myself, star persona research, and I, just, I felt she lost her argument and any thesis she was trying to make was completely overshadowed by the fact that she clearly doesn't like him. Well, and my whole thing is 10 years of trying to make him happen. We've, yes, that has, that's happened, okay? But, I mean, we're talking about it now off of an independent film, you know, that was not a big star vehicle. You know, this this was not made as a blockbuster, you know? I could see writing this after, you know, the one-two punch of, like, The Lone Ranger and The Man from U.N.C.L.E., which are big multi-million dollar movies that did not return on investment, even though both of them have a very bizarre cult following. I get the the man from Uncle following, because I follow it, because I love that movie. The Lone Ranger thing, I'm like, wait, really? That movie just sucks, um, and I own it. So, you know, I, I mean, I don't really get the need for it now, because he's not, he's happening now because it's a good movie with a good performance by him. And I will be the first person to tell you Having watched almost everything in this man's career, he is a very niche window of, like, good performance. Um, he is one of the only actors that I would say is painfully aware of, of like, his limitations. <laughs> so, you know, when you're watching one of his movies, it's a very Army Hammer performance. Um, because I always say, like, his niche, like, his, his sweet spot is, like, playing a really confident hot guy who is kind of a dick. Like, he knows that that works. And when we try to go a little outside of it, it doesn't work. But he knows it doesn't work. Uh, I, I think that he's done. I mean, if you look, if you really look at a lot of the films that he's gotten praise for or the films that he's appeared in, he's appeared as secondary characters. You know, he's in J. Edgar, which he's quite interesting in. Yeah. He was in if Free Fire, which, you know, I hardly recognized him. And I didn't even remember that he was in it until I was watching yeah. it. I was like, oh, that's Army Hammer with a gigantic beard. And, and even, so he's, even, if, even if you watch something, and I am the one person who gets so much enjoyment out of this movie, even if you watch something like Mirror Mirror, he is really adorable in that because he is painfully aware as well of what his 
purpose in that movie is to be really adorable. <laughs> and, and it works. And, it works. And, and with a lot of his performances, he has gone for, you know, so we, we have things like The Man from U.N.C.L.E. and The Lone Ranger, which are these big budget films, but he's also gone for the smaller films. He's also gone for, like, like I say, the secondary characters, the character parts. So in terms of, of critiquing an actor that has not made, that has not actually attempted to do interesting things, he's the wrong person to go for because he has. He has tried to do smaller films. He has tried to do more varied parts than just than just the leading man. You know, so Ryan Reynolds is the perfect example for that. Yeah, Ryan Reynolds, I don't think has really changed his persona. He's just found movies that work within it. Yeah, well, and that's that's the thing with Ryan. Well, Ryan Reynolds is to me another example of what you were saying, Kristen. He knows what his purpose is. He's got. I mean, he's got one character. He can play it very well, and he doesn't stray from that. Right. Yeah. Well, um, the thing is that, and <laughs> it's it's just kind of funny because like, no, I don't love Army Hammer, but I also don't hate him. <laughs> just because you don't love something doesn't automatically mean you hate it. Yes, you do. You have to. <laughs> yes, be you Army do. Hammer. You cannot have it both ways with him, Karen. Okay. But the thing is that this BuzzFeed article is. I mean, it's, we've already addressed the fact that it's completely ridiculous, but it's like, I just don't understand why she hates him so much like why she's so <laughs> determined to like just say oh because he hasn't big become this mega star that's like a big box office draw that it's i'm not even sh- okay yeah i'm not even sure what she's trying to say with it because the thing is that movies the film industry is such a luck of the draw in so many ways and so it's like you have all these really really talented very versatile actors who still haven't made it who've been working for years and years you know and so to sit there and say oh well he should you know if he was going to become a thing by now he would have that that's so much of that is out of his hands so much of that is out of the fans hands you know i mean it's just it's ridiculous to think that he because of i mean and actually i think it's kind of more of a testament to him that because of his privilege and good looks he didn't just buy his way into you know becoming this big mega star that's like playing captain america or whatever leave army hammer alone that's all i got okay <laughs> the man is a national treasure we do not deserve him okay so that's all i got maybe that's um, why it's so taken it's so weird. long it's a weird <laughs> article it is a very weird article to publish on the cusp of this film that has gotten critical r- raves he's gotten rave reviews he so we're trying to make army hammer happen he's kind of happened it's coming across as well, a jealous bitter that's... girlfriend ex-girlfriend that's the thing is they're doing it right now it's yeah. i mean there's plenty of times where they could have you know produced you know produced an article ten, you know how many years of trying to make scott eastwood happen right it's well, and scott eastwood still, still hasn't happened and it's <laughs> probably talk about won't. privilege yeah but but and that's the thing like she sits there one of the things she cites is the lone ranger was one of disney's greatest summer bombs of all time okay when i hear people complain about the lone ranger it's not army hammer they're complaining yeah, about exactly. yeah so yeah, that's yeah not we're complaining once again. Goes right back around to Johnny Depp. Okay, um, it's all Johnny yeah. Depp's fault. Well, and I, I also think I mean if you look at it, the Lone Ranger is a really weird entity in in Disney history because Disney had a one two punch of really expensive high concept movies that came out relatively quick between the two and we forget that john carter came out around the same time yeah. which was also a massive bomb 
People and apologized yet, for that movie. Exactly. And where are all the articles about 10 years making Taylor Kitsch happen? I mean, well, you know, nobody like, can ever remember his name, so. That's oh, true. That's <laughs> true. I think, I literally think I'm the only one who remembers anything from John Carter. I saw that, too. I never I don't saw own it, it so. though. I never um, saw it. I, you know, I, based on what the very few things I remember, which is like Aliens and James Purefoy, I remember thinking this is what everybody's complaining about. It's not bad. It's just kind of bleh. Like, it's not the biggest abomination of a movie. Just like I say that about The Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger sucks because it's really fucking long. Um, and it's just Pirates of the Caribbean on land. So, yeah, watch it again and think of that. I'm not kidding. It's the same movie my bitterness, as the first Pirates. My bitterness about The Lone Ranger is that they didn't name the nephew's horse. I mean, come on. That was such an easy <laughs> one and they missed that opportunity. Um, so let's How dare another... anyone attack the man from Uncle? <laughs> I know. That movie is, a, again, a treasure. We do not deserve it. I love that movie so much. But he's really funny in it. Okay, just go watch it again great um so another article that came out this one pissed me off personally this came from paste magazine and this was a story about ladybird it's quote ladybird and cycles of abuse and it's this person and i'm using third person because i'd like you to guess the gender of who wrote this article. <laughs> this person argued that ladybird is a great movie except for the fact that laurie metcalf's character is abusive to her daughter and the whole article then deconstructs the film from this argument that Laurie Metcalf's character, Marion, makes everybody around her miserable, especially her daughter. And poor Christine, uh, Shersha Ronan's character, is left to kind of deal with the fallout of having this abusive mother and they can't communicate. And I took it as a complete misinterpretation of the movie from a male writer, shock of shocks, it's written by a guy, by a male writer who did not understand what Greta Gerwig was aiming at. And I brought this up, I got a lot of people that agreed with me, who were kind of like, who who took it the same way I think that Anne Helen Peterson article came out, which was like, what the hell is this person saying? I did get a couple internet trolls who were like, this is why women are in therapy, because their mothers are crazy. And then I did get a couple females who were like, no, I, I couldn't get over the abuse angle. I am not discounting anybody's personal abuse. I am just arguing that the reading of the movie from an abusive angle by a male writer is wrong. Because having seen Lady Bird three times now, I think you empathize with both of those women equally. We talked about this when we reviewed it. You understand why Marion is the way she is, why Christine is the way she is. They're both, I think Tracy Ledd's character says that you both have very strong personalities. They both know how to needle the other. They both know how to hurt the other. It doesn't make either of them bad. It just makes them human. And so the arguments that this, this guy is bringing up about how you know when she's, uh, when Lady Bird gets to college, in, uh, applies to college in New York, uh, Marion just shuts her out and doesn't talk to her. There's a great line in it that says, imagine you are a mother. And that's where I, like, uh, my brain was already firing, and that's when it just completely shorted out. I was like, yes, male writer, please tell me more about motherhood and, uh, you know, femininity and, you know, being in that type of a relationship. I just, I felt it was a completely shallow male-dominated view of what they perceive a female relationship between a mother and a daughter to be. And it opened up this really great discussion from a lot of male writers that I had seen saying that they 
did not enjoy Ladybird because of Laurie Metcalf's character. And I think that that's because men especially have been conditioned to see mothers specifically as two types. The earth mother who does everything for her children at the expense of a social life, a job, anything. You know, it's just that 100% commitment and that love, that unconditional love and that, that, you know, compassion. Or you're the mommy dearest, which is you are an unrepentant, screeching shrew whose children hate her and you can't understand why she was allowed to keep them. You know, you used to think she should have ate her, their, her young. I think that men only see mothers in two paradigms like that. And I, I think seeing a relationship like this really throws them off because they don't know what to respond to it with. What did you guys think of this article? Because I, I hate it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's awful. I was so mad <laughs> reading it because it was very clearly a complete misunderstanding of the mother-daughter relationship, which makes sense because he's never been in one. But the thing is that I think it's really unfair. So I, I know so many moms. No, I'm not one, but I have one. And I have a lot yes, of friends exactly. who are moms. And it's like they constantly beat themselves up about whether they're doing the right things or whether they're saying something wrong or, you know, they're always questioning themselves. And to have an article like this that's basically saying, if you're this kind of mother, then you're abusive and horrible, that's feeding into every negative thought they already have about themselves. And that is so unfair because Lori Metcalf's version loves her daughter. She just doesn't know how to talk to her. She doesn't know how to navigate that relationship. It's a very complicated one. Her daughter's not the greatest kid, you know? She's kind of a brat a lot of the time. And and it's just, it's really, it's such an unfair way to categorize this relationship for both of them. And it's, I'm not going to say it's an irresponsible article, but I do think it's a, a really unfair take. And the and I do agree, the fact that it was written by a male writer, to me, discredits a lot of what he said, most of what he said, because it's coming from a place where he cannot possibly understand that relationship. Yeah, I, I, I agree with both of you, I think. And Kristen, you pointed out that dichotomy of the earth mother or mommy dearest. Yes. And yeah, and that's, that's absolutely right, that the way that the article reads, and the way that he seems to be arguing is that she, Marion is not allowed to be a human. She's not allowed to get angry. She's not allowed to be petulant. She's not allowed to sometimes be wrong uh, or any of those things, because if she is, then she's a bad mother and she's abusing her daughter. So one of the one of the scenes that he cites, I think, is that scene where Marion's finally found out that her daughter has applied to these schools on the East Coast, which she has said numerous times, not just you can't go, but we can't afford for you to go. Right. If you get in, and that's one of the constant features of this whole thing, is that Lady Bird doesn't understand and continues not to understand that her mother and her parents cannot afford to, to give her the things that she wants. Throughout that entire, the entire film, it's just like, we can't afford to send you. We're not going to be able to afford to send you. Even if you got in, we probably couldn't send you. Right, and she keeps on repeating that, and, and Lady Bird doesn't listen to her, and then finally she gets in, and her mother shuts down that whole thing where the, you have this daughter yelling at her desperate to, to get her to respond and Marion standing there not responding is very, very human. It yeah. might not be right. You know, it might, yeah, it would absolutely be better if they could stand there and talk to one another, but they can't for a multitude of reasons. 
that have to do with their characterizations and the people that they are and the way that their relationship has worked up until that point. And it's heartbreaking, but it is not abusive. Yeah, I, I mean, I, the way I always take this, the, that scene, and again, I've seen this movie three times now, and, and I, I feel the same way about it, is there's a moment after that, that scene where, where she gets into college um, where her dad sends her the letters that her mother has sent, written her. Yes, let's talk about um, that. He's, he said, he's all, I, I, she didn't want to send them because she thought you would critique her writing. And that's my big takeaway from this movie, is that mm-hmm. we forget the individualization of, of mothers, that mothers were once individuals, and the fact that her daughter is smarter than her. You know, and mm-hmm. she shouldn't be she shouldn't be jealous or intimidated by that, but she is. And and I think that's again a very human moment, the concept that, you know, you your children are gonna get the opportunities that you wish you couldn't have. And ha- and how does that feel if you feel bad about that? You know? Um, and it also goes back to Ladybird as well, the fact that her mother thinks that she can't write a letter because her daughter's gonna think she's stupid. You know, I, I think that, again, those are very real human experiences that if you're in that particular relationship, you're going to understand. And that's a problem with the article is he says right there, Marion chose not to send those letters. You don't get credit for letters you choose not to deliver any more than you should get credit for a letter you considered but didn't write at all. He's completely misunderstanding why she didn't yeah. give her the letters. It's not because she decided to withhold her emotions. It's because she was afraid of how it would be received. Right, exactly, uh, and and so I I think he's really missing the point. And I did get a comment from you know somebody who was like, oh, so you know you you can't you can o- you only can be a woman to understand those things. And I was like, well, let's look at if this had been a father son relationship, you know, would it be different? Would you receive it differently? And I think people would. You know, you look at the history of father son relationships in cinema. And I would say that fathers are put in the exact same categories, mm-hmm. but it's a different reception. So if you're the earth mother equivalent as a father and you're kind of like overly sappy, really involved with your kids, I think of, I hate to bring this movie up, I think of John Lithgow's character in, in um, Daddy's Home too. That kind of effeminate, like it's not masculine, like that's inappropriate. Or you get the serious like man dad. I think of, like, Brad Pitt in Tree of Life that's, like, kind of abusive to his kid physically, but, you know, he just toughened him, him up. You know, that's just, that's what men do. So why is it that, you know, I, I don't understand that, but I'm sure that some guy could write an article about how that's, you know, there's, there's nuances there that I'm not understanding. I don't know. My relationship with my father is very, very different. So I, I think it would be received differently if it was a, if the genders were switched. Yeah, absolutely. I hate this article, so don't read it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to list the author because he's, he's a moron. Um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So let's get into our review because we have uh, the start of the series that we're going to talk about at the end of this. So let's let's get into our review real quick. Um, we had some choices with what we could talk about this week, but I think we all agreed that we all saw the disaster artist. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Yes, so we're going to talk about that. So hopefully you guys weren't expecting um, anything else. But uh, The Disaster Artist is directed by James Franco. It tells the story of Tommy Wiseau uh, and Greg Sestero, who you might remember as the uh, creator, 
uh, screenwriter, lead actor, and I don't remember all Tommy Wiseau's credits in that movie. They created The Room, and it's essentially a biopic about the the relationship between Wiseau and Sestero, played uh, by James Franco and Dave Franco, and how they made one of the quote-unquote worst movies ever made. It also stars uh, Ari Grainer, Seth Rogen, Allison Brie, uh, a, a bunch of funny people in this movie. I need to correct so, you, Kristen. It's not considered oh, the worst movie ever made. It's considered the it's greatest I, bad movie ever made. Yeah. Oh, I was gonna say. I was gonna say it's not the worst movie ever made. I've seen way worse. Okay, where's which, the making? Which I where, challenge. I challenge. But where is the movie about the making of Showgirls Two? Because I would love to. That's the worst movie ever made. I will take the Coke challenge any day and tell you that Showgirls Two is the worst movie ever made. Um, the Room is a masterpiece compared to that. So, Karen, you you saw this I think before all of us. Did I? Um, yeah, probably. I, I saw it at AFI. Yes, um, yeah, um, and so yeah. why don't you give us your thoughts about it first? Okay, so I came into this being a fan of The Room. I have The Room on DVD. Like, I I love it. I think it's just wonderfully odd and bizarre and just, it's it's... It's a terrible movie, but it's one of the most watchable bad movies ever, and I think that's why people love it so much. And so I went into this just, like, really jazzed, because the first trailers I saw were just like, yep, I'm ready for this. And uh, so I saw it at AFI. James Franco came into our screening. It was it was the night of the big premiere, but we were in the overflow. We weren't in the big Chinese theater. Uh, so we were in the overflow, but Franco came in to introduce the film and just listening to him and the way he was talking about it and the love that he had for it was kind of a perfect way to just go into this experience because this really is a film that if you're not familiar with the room, you're like, what the fuck am I watching? You know? And, uh, and so it was just, it was in that context is how I got to watch it. And I, loved every minute of it. I thought it was surprising. I I wasn't sure how they were going to handle the stuff with Tommy Wiseau because of the fact that he is so weird and it seemed like they were just going to have fun with the fact that he's really weird. And in a lot of ways they did. But there's so much emotional... There are a, a couple of really emotional sequences in it that I really appreciated and I thought were so well done. I thought the acting was, was great from... Frank, from both Franco brothers. I thought they, they both did such a good job. I was really surprised by Dave because up till now, I mean, going back to the Army Hammer conversation and, you know, people that have been trying to get in for a while, like, I've just always seen him as, like, this just kind of, like, pretty boy side character who's sometimes just kind of a, a douche or whatever. But I thought he was really good in this. And watching the two of them play off of each other was just, it was really engaging. And the movie is fun. I love the stuff that they did in the end of the credits. Like, I just, the experience all around for me was great. It's currently, it may not say this way, but it's currently my favorite movie of the year. So, Okay, Lauren, what about you? Uh, well, I saw this uh, yesterday, actually. Um, so it's very fresh in my mind. I have I have slightly mixed feelings about it. I mean, I'm, I'm on board with, with Karen in terms of the, uh, the quality of the acting is both both James Franco and Dave Franco are great in it. And I think that James Franco does find a lot of nuance and a great deal of humanity in this character that could have been played very broadly because he is such, so odd. And he is that odd. Like if you ever watch Tommy Wiseau, either in the film or in interview or anything like that, you're like, 
what 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 is this you know what is going on is this a is this a joke is this like what is this guy and and i really liked the fact that franco went so far with the weirdness but he didn't go too far he didn't play it as this big caricature or um one of the my big fears about the film is that he was going to wind up making fun of him which he didn't so i was i was very happy with that the place where i have not not reservations but questions i guess is is how this film understands Wiseau and the fact that this is an obviously an incredibly rich man. We don't know how or why he is rich, but he has a lot of money who essentially buys his way into making the, the best band movie ever made. And my, and the, the issues that have been raised by other critics about this being kind of, perfect representation of male privilege and rich male privilege that he can essentially, you know, make this film that directed written by and starring himself may have it be so horrifically terrible and become this, like this cult figure and be very, very successful with it. So it's, I wasn't quite certain what the movie was doing with, with Wizzo's character and the, some of the issues that like the, the, the sex scene that where he was obviously very abusive to people on set and they kind of glossed over that. It was sort of a moment. And then it, they kind of moved on with the movie. And I was like, but are we not going to deal with the fact that this guy is, is being abusive to everybody? Uh, so I had a little bit of reservations about it, but I, I think I ultimately enjoyed it. So I'm going to, I'll segue with my thoughts about this movie before we get to, to Kimberly. Uh, yeah, I'm not as high on this as most people are, and I feel bad. The Room is a very interesting experiment, and I think that this movie ultimately diminishes, maybe is the word I'm looking for, the enjoyment of that movie. Because certain things in this film are presented as very convenient, almost unbelievably so. There is a scene in this movie where, first off, I, I don't like biopics where you're supposed to believe that life imitated art, that they lived as they were on screen. So a lot of, of Wiseau's writing in this movie is, is situated as based on literal things that were happening in his life. There is a moment where a character actually stops to say, I think there was a Lisa and I think there was a, a real Mark. And I think all because we've seen it, you don't need to explain it to me. We've already seen it. So I don't buy that. I don't buy that, especially because having read Sestero's book, there was no indication that any of that was true. So for me, I, I just wasn't as high on trying to set situate this as kind of like a Hollywood fairy tale oh, wait, let me, type let me of ask story. You a question really quick. There's oh, no one. indication that what was true. That that the the story that um that he he based the story the 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 plot of the room off of things in his own okay, life. Okay, here's what's weird about that because the actress who played Michelle in the movie, she wrote a review of the Disaster Artist the other day, and she said it was weird. She didn't know how they knew that, but she'd had that conversation. That's really bizarre. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I just, I didn't buy the conceit, maybe because I've seen it done in so many biopics. It's kind of yeah. biopic 101. If you watch a lot of um, of Hollywood, you know, old Hollywood movies used to, uh, biopics used to do this. So I think of, I think the one that always annoys me the most is like Gable and Lombard. They, they did the same type of thing. Like they lived as they were on screen. That's how they were off screen. I, I just, I never buy it when that's, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. 
Lauren brings up kind of the abuse. I really didn't appreciate kind of softening Wiseau um, because there are two very specific scenes where he treats the women specifically horribly. And it's kind of left to the the men in in this the film to be like, no, you're being an asshole and you need to. And, and I think it really kind of diminishes the fact that you forget that Ari Grainer and Jackie Weaver are in this movie because they're just kind of the girls that need to be defended. I had a real issue with the women in this film, mm. especially Alison Brie, who really serve no purpose other than being the girlfriend who keeps reminding Greg that, like, he could do better, and this guy's weird, and it also helps that Dave Franco and Alison Brie are married, so they pr- she probably was just around. I-, I don't know. I felt like it was... The heart is there. The good intentions are there. But I really didn't know how I I didn't really buy what they were trying to have me take away from the movie, if that makes sense. I don't know. Kimberly, what did you think of the movie? Take us home. I'm going to well, I'm going to follow up with uh, what Karen said. I I loved it. I mean, I, I can't say top of the year, but I would definitely put it in my top three. I've thoroughly enjoyed it um because one of my main worries going into it and i know we just we had discussed it was kind of where it was going to be coming from how it was going to tackle all of that i loved the kind of the heart the humanity behind it you could tell franco loved you know he 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 loved where that was coming from he found just i thought a perfect avenue to tackle was so not you know, turning, you know, I mean, there were parts of it where it felt like a joke, but you could feel the humanity behind it. You could tell that he legitimately loved this persona, this character that he was tackling. The big kind of standout for me was I, I have never liked Dave Franco. I will freely admit it. I've never liked his roles, just never, never enjoyed the movies he was in, thought he came off pretty much like a douche in most of his roles. I loved him in this. I thought he did such an amazing job and I thought it brought such humanity to the role and it was such brilliant casting that they put the brothers in the role together because working with that, they were able to tackle the nuances of that relationship, you know, from, you know, the fights to, you know, but you could tell there was a legitimate, you know, there was a legitimate love for each other there. And I thought casting Dave Franco in there was just perfect. Loved how they tackled the movie. I can only imagine the intricacies to setting up those shots and just tackling the filming kind of those, those sequels stay through the credits. If you do that, some of the, some of the stuff in there is just terrific. Well, and all the way through the credits. <laughs> yeah. Just showing how closely they researched that and how spot on they got it. It was just, I, I loved it. I, I do say I liked the, I love the cast. I thought everybody was really good. Again, Dave Franco, yeah, it really doesn't do anything for me, but he was really good. Um, I th- I love James Franco's commitment to um, playing Tommy Wiseau. I thought Seth Rogen was really funny. Um, and, and Jackie Weaver is so adorable. And the, the ones, uh, a couple of scenes that she has, you know, it doesn't come back. Uh, <laughs> her, her constant repetition about, about um, you know, her cancer. Zac Efron stole the show for me, though. <laughs> He's in, like, two scenes. Which is fitting because Game Chris R match. is the best part of the He's the best part of the of the movie. Um, and now I know that that was all true. Yeah. Um. See, for me, it was somebody, somebody in our screening after, uh, jo- what is it, Joss Hutcherson goes, oh, my God, PETA. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I just want to say too, though, like, because I've I'm almost done listening to the audiobook, which I had never read the book before, and I don't know. I feel like the, they, I mean, they obviously had to combine some elements for time and whatever, but I I feel like the the film is a really good interpretation of Sestero's version of the story. So I, I think that there are definitely things that were problematic, but I think that that's really more of just, I mean, that's just how, how problematic things were on the set. And I just, I don't know. I think that it's, it's really interesting to see the fact that this guy who nobody really knows where he's from, he did admit on Jimmy Kimmel the other night that he's from Europe. And no, he really? did. And I think, <laughs> but he doesn't have an accent. <laughs> he's from New Orleans. But well, it was it was so weird because he. That's the as far as I've been able to research. That's the first time he's admitted publicly that he is from Europe. And Jimmy Kimmel, I don't think understood the importance of that moment because Franco was like, <laughs> wait, 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 Jimmy, hold on. <laughs> And he asked Tommy again, he's like, you're from Europe? And he's just like, well, yeah, you know. But he's like, but now I'm all American boy, you know. And Oh, my gosh. It's Wait, great. Where's the, Ronan Far- where's the Ronan Farrow article <laughs> trying to figure out where, you know, Tommy Wiseau's background? <laughs> I think he's been busy doing other things. but That's true. But, but yeah, but that's, but that's just it. And so, I don't know. I think that it's, I think altogether, just as a, as an adaptation of the book, Regardless of where the real truth is, because when the book came out, Wazo said, oh, this is like 40% accurate. With the movie, he says it's 99.9% accurate, and it's like, okay, well, they're basically the same, so I don't know. I just, I think it's a, a really good adaptation, so. Where do we stand on Oscar potential? Uh, Karen? Uh, I have it getting a lot of nominations. I have I have it in for Best Picture, but not winning. I have it in for James Franco, but not winning. I have it in for, as actor, not a director. Uh, I have it in for adapted screenplay, and right now I have it winning adapted screenplay. But it's going to be a really tight race, I think, between that and Call Me By Your Name, so. Heck yeah. Um, I I was going to say I have it in uh, actor as well uh, for James Franco and adapted screenplay. I don't have it in picture. I can't buy it as a picture contender right now, but that could change. It's um, so Lauren, what LA, about you? though. That's the thing. It is. It is very L.A. Uh, Lauren, what about you? Oscar potential? I mean, definitely actor. I, I think, personally, I, I would love to see Franco win the uh, Oscar for that, just because I think it would be a great, like, final final act for that film to be like, and James Franco wins for playing Tommy Wiseau. Just be like, and I, I would love for Tommy Wiseau to accept the Oscar. That would be awesome. If anybody but Gary Oldman wins, I'm going to cry for... <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know uh, that, you know that I'm a great. It would be a great, like, I don't know, I'm not really a fuck you, but a sort of like, man, things have gotten really weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Kimberly, what about you? Uh, we actually had the exact same conversation at our screening. I believe it went something along the lines of, man, wouldn't it be awesome to see James Franco's Tommy Wiseau beat Winston Churchill for best actor? No, it would not be great. Um, <laughs> Hold on, I guys. have it for oh, picture, actor, and best adapted screenplay. 
So because we are coming up to the end of the year, uh, we are going to start a series of uh, top lists looking at uh, some of our best and worst of the years eventually. Um, we're not going to start with anything big right now. We're slowly going to tease that out as the, we get closer and closer to the holidays. So we wanted to honor some uh, animated features and trailers as part of the first annual Citizen Dame Awards. I'd like to think we have fanfare, but we can't afford it right now. So so let's start with best animated feature. We we had between one or two options. Um, does everybody only have one? Have oh, you have two. Okay, so I'm going to throw out mine. Uh, I only have one. It was either this or Cars 3, um, and I picked Coco. We talked about Coco in depth a couple weeks ago, but I think it's a return to form from Pixar. It's a beautiful film uh, about life and death and family and tradition, and it's beautifully animated. So, it, I mean, there's really no comparison. It's either this or Cars 3, guys. So so I, I, I just knew it was, it was all Coco. Coco is the best animated film of the year. Lauren, what about you? Best animated feature? Uh, I definitely have Coco. Uh, I, fin- I finally got to see it. With my parents, they cried, I cried, everybody was crying. I was sitting in the movie theater going, like, I cannot actually break into heaving sobs <laughs> in the middle of a movie. But, yes, it, I, I loved it. It was gorgeous. I loved that. <laughs> I, I loved all of the actors, and I loved that it was it went in so much depth into the culture and into, like, the the colors and everything with the Day of the Dead. And it's just very beautiful and, and an amazing film. The only other film that I could think of would be Loving Vincent, but I still haven't seen it yet. So, yeah, definitely Coco. Kimberly? Coco. Um, that was my number one. I was kind of struggling to think of a number two. I do have a Loving Vincent screener somewhere around that I need to dive into, but it would definitely be Coco for me as well, backing up everything you ladies have said. And Karen? I also loved Coco, which, yeah, we talked about a couple weeks ago, but... I just slightly more than Coco. I loved The Breadwinner. It is a beautiful film. It's the animation is a lot more simple than you get with Pixar, but it's just such a beautiful story. And it did just go into a little bit of a wider uh, release this weekend. So hopefully it'll be playing nearby, but it's definitely not a film that's for kids. It's for or not, not for young children. Um, it's based on a book, a and it, the story is about a young girl living in Kabul, Afghanistan, right before 9-11. And it's under Taliban rule. It's just horrible conditions. Her parents were university professors back before the Taliban took over. They ended up, it was at a girl's school, so they the school was closed. And her dad is, you know, has to go to the street and, and try to, basically his his job he goes out to the market every day and offers to read and write letters for people who can't read and write and she's young enough that she can come with him well then he ends up getting arrested and there aren't any adult men at home or even any teenage boys the only male in the house is her baby brother and so she disguises herself as a boy so she can go out into the marketplace and buy food and make money for the family because she has an older sister and a mom and they're kind of you know they they can't take care of themselves because of the rules and the laws that the Taliban has set up. So it's it's a heartbreaking story, but it's just beautifully done. And I think that if it plays anywhere near you, you should definitely go check it out. Awesome. So let's get into best trailers of 2017 because 
we all see a lot of, of promotion for movies, and we wanted to honor some fil- uh, some trailers that ho- hopefully uh, whetted our appetites to go see something hopefully good. So the rules pretty much were it just had to be a trailer release this year, so it can essentially be a trailer for next year uh, for a movie that comes out. And I did remember that I had two. So does anybody else, does anybody have only one? Nope, I've got two. I have only one. I can do two. Um, so, Lauren, since you only have one, what's your one? Oh, sorry. My one is It, the It trailer. I, yeah, that part of it was because I have somewhat mixed feelings with Stephen King adaptations, and as soon as that trailer came out, I was like, oh, this sets it up so nicely, and it looks so scary and so iconic. The the whole Georgie uh, chasing the boat down in the, yellow, in the little yellow raincoat and then the clown in the sewer. Yeah, it's just so well done. And all every other trailer that I looked at or could think of, I was just like, meh. So, yeah, it trailer. Kimberly? Um, I'm going to say, and I'm more what kind of appealed to me. I thought, I'm going to go with two. First one I thought of was Thor 3 any of the marketing for that. I just thought it set up the tone of the movie so well and the use of that music. And it was just kind of a perfect representation of what it was and, you know, visually and everything. The second one I'm only putting in there because it got me in to see a terrible film, Atomic Blonde, because I thought that, was that a good got, trailer. <laughs> what was that? That was a good trailer. It was, it, it set me up for, you know, expecting something absolutely amazing and the movie completely let me down, but the trailer got my butt in that seat paying. <laughs> any, any, there was a lot of good trailer music this year, and I think Atomic Blonde wins for that mashup of, uh, what is it, Personal Jesus with a Kanye West song that I can't think of right now. Um, yeah, that that was a good one. I didn't see the movie, but I feel like I probably shouldn't because the trailer was just really good. Um <laughs> Doesn't live up to it, trust me. <laughs> Karen, what are your top trailers? Well, actually, one of mine was the teaser trailer. Not the full trailer, but the teaser trailer for The Disaster Artist. Because it just showed the scene of James Franco as Tommy Wiseau trying so hard to get that I did not hit her part. And just take after <laughs> yes. take after take. And it was just <laughs> so funny. I was like... I need to see this movie right now. <laughs> so I loved that. And then I also, another teaser that I loved was the Itania teaser trailer as well. So it was just like, I kept, I had kept hearing, you know, buzz about Itania, but getting that first glimpse of it for myself, I was just like, yep. Okay. I see why everyone's loving this. So, so my two tra- top trailers of the year are for movies that aren't out yet. They come out next year. So my number two is actually the trailer for Annihilation. <laughs> I've been waiting for this movie since last year. And I know that it's probably going to disappoint me. But the trailer, which if you've watched the trailer on a small screen, do yourself a favor and try to find it playing on a big screen because there's a lot more detailing in it. Um, it's just the world building looks beautiful on a big screen. Um, and I, it got me prepped for Alex Garland taking Natalie Portman out into space and Oscar Isaac's in it and he looks great. He, there's no godforsaken reason why he should be in this movie significantly because it's not the book, but it got me, it got me enticed. Um, I'm all for a movie that's going to have Gina Rodriguez and Natalie Portman doing some weird shit in, in a bizarre location where like deers have trees growing out of their antlers and 
there's a creepy lighthouse. Um, I know what's going to happen, but and there's a massive spoiler in the trailer, but I, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready for February. God, that's not a good release date either. Never mind. Um, and then my number one trailer <laughs> is actually the teaser. It's not the trailer that just came out, I think, last week for A Wrinkle in Time. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. I have not read A Wrinkle in Time, but I am <laughs> so ready to see this movie. Uh, I, I loved how it was set up. It's it's a very brisk trailer. It gets me excited. Uh, again, good music and trailers. It had a really great uh, interpretation of, uh, what is it, the Eurythmics. So I was I was into it. I'm ready. I, I don't think the new trailer got me as hyped as this one did, the, tra- the, the teaser. So... Yeah, those are those are mine. Um, if you have best animated feature or trailers that you want to uh, discuss that we did not talk about, you can uh, contact us a variety of ways and share your thoughts. Um, Karen, where can they get in touch with us? We are on Twitter at Citizen Dame Pod and on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Citizen Dame. And you can reach out to us individually through Twitter. I am at Journeys underscore film. Karen? I am at Karen M. Peterson. Lauren. I am at LH Business. And Kimberly. At KPierce624. And if you want to listen to the podcast, you can do that at citizendame.podbean.com or via Stitcher Radio. Uh, we will be back next week with hopefully less garbage men and more <laughs> more uh, Citizen Dame awards. Um, as always, we are the Citizen Dames, and we will see you next time. Bye. Scene 112. Take 13, mark it, action. I did not hit her, I... Okay, okay, wine. I did not hit her, it's not true, it's bullshit. I did not hit her, I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Take 17, action. I hit her. No, do you want to change the line? Script is script, script says same. You're doing great, man. We'll get there. Action. Action. Action, action! You have to say it loud, I can't hear it in here. Say action so I can hear. Okay.